Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. On January 23, 1961, just four days after President John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, a B-52 bomber crashed near Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Two H-bombs, each 250 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan marking the end of World War II, were thrown out and fell at a velocity of 700 miles per hour and crashed into Goldsboro, North Carolina. 
Information about this event was kept classified until 2013. This is the true story of that mission as told by the man who actually dismantled the hydrogen bombs in the aftermath of an accident that could have been the worst man-made disaster in history. Here's Earl Smith with the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. Well, I graduated high school in 1956 in Hatton, Alabama. And like everybody else around there, the day after you graduate high school, you go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I go to Kalamazoo to visit my brother. I had a brother and two sisters live there. And uh, my brother had a neighbor about my age. And so we decided to go downtown on a Saturday morning just to fool around. And so there was a recruiter station. I said, let's go and make that thing. guy think we're going to join. So, so it was in the morning we were down there. So uh, by uh, 3 o'clock that afternoon, we was pulling out on a train for the processing station in the Air Force. So anyway... When I went back, my brother was about to have a heart attack. He said, you did what? I said, I joined the Air Force. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I did. I got to leave this afternoon. <laughs> and I left. We signed up on a buddy plan, and after that, I never saw my buddy again. So he goes to California uh, for school, and I go to um, Texas. And the first school I w went to is uh, called Munition School. And uh, they give you different tests to see kind of what you qualified for. So this uh, first assignment, they send me to down to Puerto Rico, Ramey Air Force Base. So I go down, down to uh, Puerto Rico there, and uh, well, I'm doing the job at what the munition maintenance uh, calls for, which is basically taking care of the bombs and the ammo in the storage area and loading them on the plane and what have you. Well... The Air Force decided to start a airborne alert with nuclear weapons. So we had 33 B-36 bombers down there. So they started what they call Operation Curtain Razor. Every day at one o'clock, a plane would leave Ramey, and at the same time, another plane would leave North Africa. There's one always, always in the air, and five on the ground, or five days on the ground, was loaded with nuclear weapons, each one, ready to go, and ammunition. So anyway, when I leave Puerto Rico, they formed a new squadron called the 53rd M MMS, uh, which is Munitions Maintenance Squadron. And we wound up at, at uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Back then, I, you know, I, I just figured I'd rather disarm a bomb and eat when I was hungry, you know, but uh, real reckless, you know, that back then, but... But I'm the same kid that when I was growing up, all the little neighbor kids older than me, they taught me into turning over the neighbor's beehive and stuff like that, and I throw a bucket in the well, the old dug wells, and I'd do stuff like that. I was real daring. <laughs> so I guess it stems from back from something like that. I had put in for bomb disposal school, but before you can get in, uh, you have to, I understand, have to have a a grade of 90 or above, I believe, from munition man for them to put the money behind you. And it's strictly voluntary. So I received an appointment after a few months to go to EOD school in Indianapolis, Maryland. Well, the school, the school, like I say, was, was extremely hard. Uh, you just literally live from day to day and hope you can make it through another day. Because the man, when they're in the indoctrination, first of all, they take you out in this field it's about, about a 20-acre field. And they have everything that's ever been thrown, dropped, or projected 
from all over the world up to a V1 and V2 rocket. It hadn't got to the, you know, the big rockets at the time. And they, a man tells you, he said, gentlemen, before you graduate this school, if you're fortunate enough to graduate this school, you'll be able to walk up to any piece of ordnance out here and tell me what it is, what kind of explosive used in it, what kind of fusion system, and what country's from, and how to disarm it. And everybody punching everybody, yeah, sure, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, it's, but before you leave that school, that's one of the easier things you can do. You're not even got into the, to the big, big uh, missiles and what have you. But really, the nuclear bombs hadn't entered, hadn't entered my mind. I, I, I just, I never dreaming that I'd have anything dropped in my lap like was dropped in my lap. But once I, uh, I get back to my base after I graduate, and uh, it happened to be my night on uh, standby. It was January, it was actually January the 23rd, 1961, when the control tire called me. And they said, uh, we have a B-52 coming in, tail number 0187, with fuel leaks in the Bombay area. Well, I knew that was serious because when they go to let the landing gear down, you possibly have sparks could, you know, create a fire. And I lived off base, so it had been a snow on the ground. It was about 10 degrees that night, so I got dressed right quick, and I didn't bother to lace my boots on it. I just wrapped the strings around them, tied them. But by the time I got to the base, they determined it had crashed off base about 12 miles. So General Moore had already had a helicopter waiting for me because the EOD man has a first priority on what they call a, a broken arrow. The bomb that fell was a Mark 39 uh, bomb, which is actually 3.8 megatons of explosive. And a lot of people don't know how, how much a megaton is. If you take a, a railroad car, coal car, and you load it heaping up with TNT, it would stretch all the way across the United States and back in far Chicago. That's only one point, one megaton, only one megaton. This was 3.8. And you've been listening to Earl Smith, the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. You're going to want to hear the rest of this story here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past. Know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we continue here with our American stories, and we just learned from Earl Smith that just one of the two hydrogen bombs that fell on Goldsboro, North Carolina in 1961 contained 3.8 megatons of explosives. Here's Earl making that statistic understandable to laymen. The experts claimed that it would, uh, with the fallout and everything, if one of them had gone off, it would kill everybody all the way from New York City all down the eastern seaboard to the tip of the Florida Keys. 
so pretty much wiping off the, the whole eastern seaboard. It was 250 times stronger than what was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, that was only 40 kilotons. So this thing was, it was just, just a monster. So when we get out to the, to the things, he had a light under the helicopter and we're flying around and I see a parachute. I said, my God, they're not supposed to be connected. Uh, so I said, set me down as close as you can get to it. And the guy said, but I don't want to get too close. I said, it don't matter, buddy. You get me as close as you can. So General Moore tells me, he said, now you can't touch that bomb or anything until we get permission from Atomic Energy Commission. I said, no, sir, that's not the way it works. And that scared me. So I got off and see what to do. And I walk up to the bomb. When I opened that access door and saw that red A, I mean, I just, I just turned cold. I mean, it's the scariest thing. I, I was 24 years old, and, and as the old saying, well, what am I doing here, you know? That was uh, uh, something I just didn't sign up for. But uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was armed and functioning. And, and I, I thought, I really thought at that point when I couldn't find that other bomb, I thought I was dying. I, I mean, it's funny what you can tell your, your mind, you can tell yourself. And I did. I was pain. I had the, the pains in the chest and everything was, was right around. I mean, buddy, I, I knew I was going. I was going fast, but I had to get, get done what I could. And I happened to look over in the distance. There was about a five-mile area that was literally lit up uh, with parts of the plane burning. And I saw an ambulance over with the big, big uh, uh, cross on it. And I started to feel better for some reason or other, you know. So, so a few hours later, a few hours later, ever general seemed like an Air Force showing up. And uh, General Moore, who was a, uh, General Moore was one star general. And General Sweeney, who was the, the, uh, the commander of 8th Air Force, of which I was assigned to, Anyway, he starts asking me, what all, what did you do first, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, sir, I'm probably in a lot of trouble. He said, what do you mean? Well, when uh, General Sweeney found out that uh, I had uh, been told by General Moore that I had to get permission for Atomic Energy Commission, he turned to his uh, aide and said, get General Moore over here. I said, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. So... General Moore comes up, and the very words he said to General Moore, he said, General Moore, if you don't know this man's damn job, I suggest you have him up to your office about two to three times a week for coffee and donuts so he can explain to you what the hell he does. Oh, Lord, my heart just sunk because General Moore's going back to 8th Air Force, and here I'm going to be stuck on base with this general, and I'm a little old airman, first class, enlisted man, you know, and he made him look bad, made him look real bad. Nothing ever came of it, but uh, that was, I was more scared of that than I was the bomb. I wasn't worried about the bomb. I knew I could take it. <laughs> well, about an hour and a half later, three more uh, of the EOD men, a Sergeant Fletcher and a Sergeant uh, Fincher and a Sergeant Evers, they came out in the pickup, and we proceeded to disarm the, the, the first bomb. And uh, what happens, those bombs are so powerful, they have to be let down by parachute because they blow the plane out of the air. But they can be set up to 46 hours. This can be that long a delay because they don't worry about uh, uh, the Russians coming up and disarming them because if they don't do exactly the steps as they're supposed to be, it'll blow up anyway. So 
we knew that part too. So you got to do disconnect one CKT wire and then wait three minutes or so on. And then, you know, it's the steps and you have to do it exactly. So that's, it's, that's the reason for the parachute. So anyway, we get this bomb taken care of and I called out uh, the motor pool for them to get a, to bring a flatbed truck out so they could get down in a lift to get this bomb to go back to the base. In other words, it's, it's taken care of. Well, eight and a half hours after this happened, this Lieutenant Ravel shows up with a crew from SAC headquarters, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he comes marching out there like little Lord Fortenroy, taking in charge. Well, the first thing he did was we, we finally found a second bomb, and it was, well, it really took about, about three days before we really got to the park, because everything had to be done. We had to be real careful digging, because we get, had 92 detonators that were live, and those had to be, each one had to be counted for and put in a, a little container and got back to the base. <clears throat> well, when they got down, dug deep enough, to, for, for the big afterbody part where the parachute was still in, well, he, uh, Lieutenant Ravel and his group removed that out of the ground. That was just that afterbody. Well, I was the lowest ranking man <laughs> in, on there, so I, I got the, uh, the good duty of getting down in the hole, down in the, the, the muddy water and icy water and everything, reaching down in the hole and pulling up parts of the bomb and identifying uh, what each one was. And uh, I reached down, I got the, the, the uh, nuclear core, right it up between my legs, and I handed it to somebody, I don't remember who it was, but I told them I probably won't ever have any more kids. And I didn't after that. So once we got all of that stuff out in a tritium bottle, then there wasn't really anything else for them to, you know, that's explosive to where the big, the big diggers couldn't come in. And uh, the local people wouldn't drink the water. They were, you were scared to death. They wouldn't drink the water. So we got permission to bring three of the old timers around. I can't remember even what their names were. But anyway, I took a, a cup and poured some water in it and I drank it. And I said, well, you know, would you think I would drink it if, you know, so that kind of gave them peace of mind. So we never heard any more thing about that. But they uh, told us to, uh, didn't want the public to know what we were looking for. There was one, a, a part had, which weighed about 3,000 pounds, which was uh, uranium-235 and 238. It hit hard pan and kept going. And we were looking for this. That's what all the digging was going to be about. But uh, they told us to tell everybody when they were reporting anybody else that we were looking for a part to an ejection seat. <laughs> made made a lot of now that's what we actually had to say, but one one poor man was a sharecropper, and he looks up and sees this humongous parachute with something in it. He thought the Russians were invading, so he grabbed a pound of cornbread and some milk and some blankets. They found him seven hours later under some bushes where they were looking for uh, Major uh, Shelton. He he was um, something had killed him. The, the body, three bodies were, were uh, killed, and two bodies were uh, in the wreckage immediately close to where the bomb was. But uh, five men survived. One man, Captain Maddox, he didn't have an ejection seat. So when everybody else ejected, he said he saw a, he saw a hole and he just dove for it. 
never dreaming he'd get out. So he made it through, and then uh, he, he hitched a ride somewhere back to the base. He still had his parachute, and the, the gate guard was talking about going to arrest him, thought he'd stole a parachute. But nobody, to my knowledge, has ever escaped jumping out of a jet plane and survived. And you're listening to Earl Smith, and my goodness, what he was up to that day in North Carolina. Well, we never knew about it until fairly recently. There's been a book written about it, a big bestseller. It's being optioned as a movie. The Goldsboro Broken Arrow is the thriller by Joel Dobson. The book inaccurately recounts the story from the perspective of Jack Ravel, and that's why we're bringing you Earl Smith's account. He was the guy who did the work, not the guy who wanted the credit. And we know the difference between those two when it comes to political theater and showboaters. When we come back... We're going to continue this remarkable story, the story of how one of the world's greatest man-made disasters was averted, here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. 
Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. And we continue here with our American stories. And we love telling you these stories from history because they're important. And my goodness, these are things ordinary Americans do that are, well, they're just extraordinary. Let's return to Earl Smith picking up with three other men who helped him dismantle the hydrogen bomb back in 1961 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. They're the real heroes, too. Like I said, they're... they're they're all dead now, and what had happened before this, before I found out about all this, uh, somehow this Lieutenant Ravel had found out the other three guys were dead. So he thought I was dead too. So he proceeded to tell the story like all this, how he took care of that bomb, which was a bunch of crap. I mean, just out and out blatant lie or something like that, because he had nothing to do. That bomb was ready at the time he got shot, come on team, was taken care of and ready to go back to the base. And I imagine he was quite shocked when he found out that I was still alive. After I come come up there and there was a lot of lot of uh, publicity about it, after I got back home, this movie producer called me from Paris, France, and uh, he said he was making a movie called The Cold War, and he loved to tell my story in it. And he said, I'll fly you back up there and we'll pay all your expenses and everything. And I said, okay. So we, I went back up there in, in uh, April of that year. Well, the man who, uh, Kurt Keller, who is a principal person, he, is, he wants everything to be historically correct. And he's the uh, president of the Historical Society for Goldsboro. Well, this lieutenant, when he was telling his story, me or neither three of the other guys were ever mentioned about anything. Never mentioned. Never mentioned. So that set me on fire about getting everything straight. So that's when I went back. They, they uh, or Kurt Keller invited me up to uh, tell the story. As a matter of fact, uh, when we made this movie, the man is flying over from Paris. The guy who's the uh, director or president of the Historical Society, he said... This Lieutenant Ravel was invited to be a part of it, too. He said, I'll take bets he won't show up. And guess what? He didn't. I was sure hoping to hell he would. After all that he told and this stuff, and, and after three dead men, uh, Sergeant Fincher, Sergeant Fletcher, and Sergeant uh, uh, Evers, with all they'd done, I mean, they, they couldn't defend herself. And the way he did that, I, I lost any respect I ever might have had about him. And then when they write this book, they write this book, uh, I think it ended up being two books. I've only seen one, uh, Broken Arrow over Goldsboro. The man that wrote that, I, I finally had talked to him, and I said, I don't hold you. I, I said, uh, first of all, I asked him, where did you get this information? He said, well, from Lieutenant Ravel. I said, well, he told you a bunch of crap. And then I proceeded to tell him about what really happened. And he said, well, I figured, 
he was an officer and a gentleman. And I said, well, you kind of figured wrong on this one, didn't Because he, he, he wasn't. Uh, turned out to be uh, other than that. But he never showed up when we went to film this movie, but that's the way it happened. I, I, I remember everything just, just like it was yesterday. I, I don't, because when something like that is, is, is so vivid, I mean, something is so important, you just don't forget it. But I, like I say, I never thought we were told to never, ever mention it. They say, you don't ever speak of this. You don't ever, you ever, you never, never, ever, ever speak of it. So that scared this old boy, so I kind of put it out of my mind, you know. Well, first of all, they said something that bothered me for many years because they were telling everybody that all the parts were found. And I knew that piece of uranium, 238 and 230, was still in that ground. And I didn't know where it, anything it might have moved, where it might have finally started uh, doing something to the water supply. And it bothered me for many years about the people living down there. and, and, and uh, but uh, we were told, you know, you, you, you don't talk about this. You don't, you know. But they were telling, the Air Force was telling, we were looking for an injection seat to see what killed uh, Major Shelton. And they spent a little over a million dollars digging. Now, now, now a million dollars in 1961 was a, was a lot of money, a lot of money. So they, they let us know right quick, you, you don't talk about it. They know. And President Kennedy had only been in office four days, and that was his first first uh, uh, speech I think he had to make about our, our press report, I guess. But like I said, I know there were a lot of generals, a lot of generals there, and uh, and a lot of media had started showing up until they finally had, they, well, they threatened with a $25,000 fine. That's what, now they couldn't keep him out, but that's that's what they did. But they was, boy, they said, hell no, don't, you don't say a word about this. Don't say a word about it, you know. So uh, I don't think it uh, there is. I thought for a long time I worried about it. But because when you think about it, uh, the radiation would have come from, from the core, and we got the core out. But this, this other is buried so deep that the uranium, that's where it comes from out of the ground anyway. So, so uh, it's still on the ground. They're doing, they do regular testing on it. But in my later years, I'd, I got in, I mostly selling RVs up, a dandy RV up in uh, uh, Oxford. And these men came in, and they were EOD men. So I mentioned to one of them, I said, uh, you know, I, I was ex-EOD man. I said, I worked on a little job up in North Carolina. And he looked, well, looked at you, you worked on that job? I said, yeah. I said, sure did. I said, I was, I was on standby. I had it by myself for an hour and a half. He said, you know it's all over the internet. And I said, well, no. I mean, so boy, I finally got in, got on there and after reading all that stuff, my blood started boiling, all that crap he was telling, you know. And uh, I mean, it, not only just for myself, for the other men that risked their lives. When you go out on something like that, you don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, but for him to come in and try to take credit for something somebody else did, it's just not right. No, no way in the world. I, I, I don't, I don't hold any animosity toward him. He's, at the time, I, I could broke his neck when I first heard about it. But, but uh, you're not supposed to hate. And, and I mean, this the whole thing was just, I mean, just, just, just like something, something that's never. Uh, it's never happening.
And you've been listening to Earl Smith telling the story of disarming a hydrogen bomb, no, two hydrogen bombs that fell on North Carolina back on January 23rd, 1961. This event was kept classified until 2013. And by the way, assuming that everyone had died, Lieutenant Jack Ravel decided to, well, do what we all know people like this, did what he thought he could do, take advantage of an opportunity and take credit for work done by other men. No surprise that he wasn't showing up wherever Earl Smith showed up because, my goodness, Earl would have had detailed memory of disarming that bomb that, let's face it, Lieutenant Jack Ravel simply couldn't or didn't have. A great story. And by the way, we always welcome your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is just a... Look, you don't hear a guy talking about himself in heroic ways. He... He did what he was trained to do, and he did it with a bunch of guys, and a whole bunch of guys died probably trying to get this plane to land safely and not create, again, what would have been perhaps the worst man-made disaster in human history. Earl Smith's story, the story of a man who disarmed a couple of H-bombs in North Carolina back in 1961, the year of my birth, here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. 
And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about the Wrigley Mansion. It was built by William Wrigley Jr., the man who invented, as you can probably guess, Wrigley's chewing gum. Judy Pearson is here to tell us the story of the building, the man who built it, and so much more. Take it away, Judy. In 1891, 30-year-old William Wrigley arrived in Chicago from Philadelphia. With $32, the only money he had to his name, about $900 today, he started the Wrigley's Scouring Soap Company. To entice housewives to try his soap, he included a box of baking powder with every purchase. Wrigley was soon shocked to discover that his baking powder was more popular than his soap. So he went into the baking soda business, adding two packages of chewing gum to each can. Again, his gift with purchase was more popular than his primary product, and Wrigley's chewing gum was born, producing spearmint, juicy fruit, and double mint. The business grew, and so did Wrigley's fortune. In 1915, he spent two and a half million dollars telling people that chewing gum aided the digestion and that chewing it was a pleasurable experience. Remember, double your pleasure, double your fun with double mint gum? Wrigley was a whirlwind of ideas. He never stopped innovating and reinventing himself, always ready for the next adventure. He bought a minority stake in the Chicago Cubs in 1916 and became the majority owner in 1921. Six years later, he changed the name of the team's ballpark to Wrigley Field. Wondering about the feasibility of shipping his chewing gum via the relatively new airplanes in 1919, Wrigley got the idea to drop packages connected to parachutes. Dealers across the Midwest would then travel to the drop points, taking delivery of their merchandise. That same year, Wrigley bought the Santa Catalina Island Company. As had been the case with Wrigley's own ventures, the company came with a gift with purchase, the entire island, located off the coast of Los Angeles. With the dream of creating an enterprise that would help employ local residents, Wrigley improved the island with public utilities, new steamships, a hotel, a casino, and extensive plantings of trees, shrubs, and flowers. 
by that time, Wrigley had ownership, full or partial, in 15 different companies around the country. It was Arizona that next captured his heart. He bought a few mines in the state, but real estate held a special interest. Wrigley created a syndicate with three other men to purchase 150 acres along famed Camelback Road. The purchase price was $100,000, a million and a half today, although today it's worth many times more than that. The land was adjacent to the newly opened Biltmore Hotel, in which Wrigley was also heavily invested. The Tsar of Chewing Gum owned four very palatial homes, but in 1930, he began building something special on the 100-foot-high La Colina Solana, the sunny hill. It would be an anniversary gift for Wrigley's wife, Ada, and oh, what a home it was to be. The Mission Revival Mansion would be nearly 17,000 square feet. Set on 10 acres, it would have a 360-degree view of the Valley of the Sun below. The 30-foot-high foyer rotunda would be adorned with gold leaf and hand-painted ceiling. And the floor below was laid with tiles made in Wrigley's Catalina Island estate kiln. The rest of the home had pegged oak floors covered in beautiful hand-woven Spanish rugs. The oak Steinway grand piano to be placed in the living room was one of only two in existence, doubling as a player piano. And all of the chairs throughout the mansion were carefully crafted lower than normal to accommodate Ada's petite frame. Every doorknob, hinge, window fixture, and switch plate in the mansion would be brass, with the exception of those in the family bedrooms, they were sterling silver. The mansion took three years to reach its splendor. It was Wrigley's plan to spend the early months of 1932 there. But a few weeks after arriving in January, he was stricken with acute indigestion and died at the age of 70 in his bedroom atop the sunny hill. The Wrigley Mansion, as the locals called the home, remained a much-loved family destination. Ada suffered a stroke there, dying in 1957. And then, in 1973, the beautiful mansion was sold. Like a stray dog, she passed from one ill-fated owner to another. A developer who died of a heart attack. A savings and loan caught up in the 1980s scandal. Another developer who filed for bankruptcy. But prior to each failed ownership, her lovely rooms and grounds welcomed business conferences, dozens of brides and grooms, and celebrity parties. And then, the end of the line arrived for the Wrigley Mansion. In 1992, rumors reported that this graceful landmark would be demolished for condo construction. Enter another intriguing millionaire capitalist with a love of beautiful things. Jordy Hormel's family had founded Hormel Foods, based in Austin, Minnesota. The company's most famous product was the canned meat, Spam. Jordy loved music, owning a music studio in Los Angeles and playing multiple instruments. As a composer, he had written a number of well-known television theme songs and once recorded with his buddy Frank Zappa. Like William Wrigley, Jordy eventually found his way to Phoenix, where he bought the largest home in the state of Arizona. And not long after that purchase, 
he heard about the proposed fate of the mansion on the sunny hill. He called a realtor friend and requested a showing. In the first few minutes of his Wrigley Mansion tour, Jordy was transported back to his childhood, and the Wrigley's home reminded him of his own childhood home. Having turned that into a supper club, where he entertained guests with his accomplished piano playing, he knew he could do the same thing with this mansion. The beautiful stray dog won Jordy Hormel's heart. He bought it immediately. Jordy and his wife Jamie began restoring the mansion and opened it as a private club. Jordy entertained Sunday brunch guests on the Steinway Grand, still in the living room. He played Happy Birthday every Sunday because, as Jordy used to say, every day is someone's birthday. The family enjoyed the mansion as much as the public did. The Hormel children would sneak napkins out of the dining room and slide down the hill on them and the pastry chefs could always be charmed into giving them treats. They celebrated birthdays and holidays at the mansion, and the Hormels even renewed their wedding vows there. When Jordy died in 2006, Jamie became the mansion's proprietor. Continuing what her husband had begun, she has made it a world-class destination. She's brought the kitchen into the 21st century while lovingly updating rooms to former grandeur. The spectacular wine cellar is well stocked. An outstanding Phoenix chef is at the helm in the kitchen and the national awards keep rolling in. The Wrigley Mansion and the Wrigleys in general hold a special place in my heart. My mother was a die-hard and lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. The baseball team William Wrigley bought in 1921. Living in Phoenix, I discovered the magical charm of the Wrigley Mansion shortly after the Hormels reopened it as a private club and restaurant. I took my father there for dinner when he came to Phoenix on a business trip. He was so taken with the history and the views that when he returned home, he and my mother hatched the idea of a surprise 40th birthday party for me to be held in the mansion on the sunny hill. Every time I walk into that majestic foyer, I'm reminded of that magical night in 1993 when Happy Birthday was played for me on that famed Steinway in the living room. My mother died just a few weeks after my memorable Wrigley Birthday Gala and was never able to visit the Czar of Chewing Gum's beautiful Phoenix Mansion. But I know she would chuckle at one particular detail. Through all the owners and renovations, one room remained just as William Wrigley created it. To the left of the hand-carved double front doors is a tiny closet with a small table and a telephone switchboard, vintage of course. Today, it's assumed the butler used the room to call family members when visitors arrived. It has a unique silver sheen on the walls and the faint odor of mint. It is the gum room. It is wallpapered with foil from my favorite Wrigley chewing gum. Doublement. And what a beautiful story by a beautiful storyteller. And we're talking about Judy Pearson, and she's a published author. The Wrigley Mansion story here on Our American Story. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are. Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.